0: Hi, I'm Siobhan Hunt, and this is Kindling Conversation, a Kindling Kids radio podcast. Just a quick note before we get into the next episode. If you haven't already, I'd love you to rate and review Kindling Conversation wherever you get your podcasts, or if you enjoy the episode, share it with your friends. It's always great for more parents to hear these stories and get the information. All right, thank you, and on with the show.
1: You're listening to Kindling Conversation with Siobhan Hunt, part of Kindling Kids Radio.
0: I've watched friends who've had a child diagnosed with special needs, and there's a recurring theme that I see. There's grief at the loss of what could have been. There's isolation and loneliness before they meet other families going through similar discoveries. And finally, and this is what I have noticed most of all, there is a fierceness of love, protection and fighting for their child. I mean, I'm talking standout fierceness. We're all pretty fierce about our kids, but particularly the women I know who have a child that needs extra support. They've gone out and researched everything there is to research. They've done all the work and they become almost a professional carer of their loved one. Melinda Hildebrandt is a parent who has felt all of these things. Her daughter, Amelia, was born deaf only diagnosed two years after birth. Anyone with a young child will understand how significant those two years are. Later, Amelia was also found to be on the autism spectrum. Melinda joins me now. Hi, how are you, Melinda? Hi,
1: Siobhan. Thank you for having me.
0: Amelia was a very much longed-for baby, wasn't she?
1: Absolutely, yes. We tried for a while to have a baby, for about a year, I guess, and then we decided to go through um, IVF because I was had some fertility issues. So um, so yeah, we went through all of those things that a lot of people experience the unknown in that space. So after a few years, we were successful. We sort of got off pretty lightly with IVF. I think we only went through kind of a couple of cycles really and were successful. So that was, that was uh, an amazing journey. And I remember thinking, all oh, the hard stuff is over. That was (laughs) so great. So she was much longed for, and the joy of that, I I can still remember getting the news on the phone that we were successfully pregnant. It was just, yeah, cataclysmically exciting. Yeah.
0: Before we get into the nitty gritty of your book, um, which is Amelia and Me on deafness, autism, and parenting by the seat of my pants, that's your book. Um, Before we get into it, I just want to talk about Amelia. because. This is what your book's about. Yeah. She is what your book's about. And I'd love to get a sense of her as a person. Yeah. You mentioned she's nine year nine years old now. How would you describe Amelia?
1: I have so many words in my head when, when people ask me that. The thing that I love about Amelia is that she's very feisty. So, you know, <laughs> so the fierceness that you were speaking about before, I feel like it's um like it's a genetic <laughs> product. <laughs> and part of me is part of me, you know, finds it really stressful to raise her because she is so fierce with me, um, and that is why I have so many white hairs. But also, it means that she just comes at the world with, you know, just her eyes open ready to take on whatever is going to happen to her. So, for instance, this year, very suddenly she lost um, the rest of her residual hearing. So she went from having sort of enough to cope with hearing aids to having... Pretty much nothing at all. So to being profoundly deaf, and so she's you know was eight at that time, and I was thinking, oh, well, how is she going to cope with what's happening? She was clearly not hearing a lot, like pretty frustrated, and had to go through um, her first cochlear implant surgery. And I just um just watch her in awe and wonder how she just adapts to these things. And I think part of that is a symptom of what I'm sure is her perhaps lack of understanding of the depth of those issues for her age. But I also think it's just she's so used to being prodded and poked and having to be in hospitals. And she was excited about a cochlear because her friends have them. So for her, it was a part of fitting in. So I just think of her as this courageous, brave, amazing person who's also, even though at times she's kind of, Bigger than Ben Hur, so her emotional responses to things. She's very, she's got some diva (laughs) stuff going on, but equally, she's very sensitive to people's emotions. So I think there's this um, misnomer about autism that people on the spectrum are somehow cut off or lacking in empathy. My experience of Amelia is the opposite. I feel like she's plugged into the mainframe of my emotions. And for that reason, I actually have to mask things sometimes because I might f- furrow my brow because I'm just thinking about something. She's like, what's, what's wrong? Are you okay? Is everything okay? So I think that, um, yeah, she's just, she's a really complex person dealing with a lot with so much kind of grace and just um, resilience that I I just she's like the greatest person in the world (laughs) as far as I'm concerned yeah
0: brilliant well now that we we've got a sense of who she is let's go back to the um the beginning because as I mentioned Amelia was only diagnosed as being deaf at two years of age yeah can you describe the grief you felt once you understood Amelia was deaf. Mm-hmm. Given that it had been two years, the start of her life yeah. when so much development happens.
1: Yeah, it was a it was a pretty bottomless uh, feeling of of grief. I didn't, I couldn't really sense that it had an end <laughs> at the time. Um, and it's nice to think back to it, um, having come through it over so many years. And it does take some time to recover from that. But I think. You're so right. So two years you spend with this child and you bond with them and you get to know who you think they are. And some of that is real, but, but if you think about how um, we communicate with a child, and so a lot of it's nonverbal but actually the things that I loved about... Mothering in those early years before your child is verbal themselves are those things like singing to your baby and whispering, you know, secrets to them, that kind of thing. And I just remember being hit with this feeling of, she has heard none of this. She's actually um, never heard my voice. And so, as you can probably tell from the way that I speak, I like to talk a lot and um, (laughs) very expressive. And I just thought, wow, like, all that silliness. And it doesn't mean we hadn't bonded, but for me, I felt this perhaps strange sense of betrayal, that my sense of the experience was no longer real and that this rug had been ripped out from beneath us. And what what was left, it was very hard for me to know because this um, diagnosis of deafness, it just seemed to cast this pall over everything so I thought how do I how do I now reach her where do we do we have to start again and it kind of did feel like that to
0: me. You're listening to Kindling Conversation. I'm speaking with Melinda Hildebrandt. She's the author of Amelia and Me on Deafness, Autism and Parenting by the Seat of My Pants. We're talking about Amelia when Amelia was first um, diagnosed as being deaf and it was at two years of age. And I think as parents listening to this, we can understand just how full on And I say understand, we can't truly understand, but we get that after those first two years. Mm. One thing I am fascinated about, you sign now, am I right? Yes,
1: that's correct, yep.
0: I am fascinated to know how your relationship with Amelia has developed through sign language and how that understanding of words and communication and connection, how has that developed with
1: Auslan? It's been such a big it's been such a big and amazing journey I think. So we took a decision um, when we were choosing early intervention services that we wanted to take a bilingual approach to her education as a deaf person. So um, not every um, family makes that decision. So most deaf children are born to hearing families so it's like there's a fork in the road and you can take the Auslan path or you can go a different way and so for me I just remember uh, this was sort of a little bit after she'd had her hearing aid, so she'd started being able to form some sounds and words, repeat them back to me for the first time in her life, but it's a lot harder to do that when you've never even listened before, let alone um, processed information and spoken, but with sign language, I could quickly um, pick up some some words myself and the cut through of a visual language was pretty amazing. So suddenly I have this child who I feel I haven't reached for a couple of years and I teach her a sign and it's not just that she can sort of mimic it back to me. it It is also that she understood that that sign represented that thing, whatever it was, whether it be an object or a feeling. And that was a huge thing for me in terms of dealing with my grief and coping with this big life change because suddenly I can connect with her. And she can learn. So I was scared that before we understood what was happening with her, that maybe she had some kind of, you know, developmental delay, um, intellectual disability. I just didn't know. It opened up this whole world. So imagine Siobhan, like the first time she signs that she loves me, she signed that before she ever said it. So um, because I could sign it to her. So even though I felt like we were coming to it late, sign language um, for me gave me a way to breakthrough to her, quite apart from what it's given her in terms of her her deaf her sense of her deaf identity. Um so yeah, just uh, I couldn't be happier with our decision with that. Yeah. Oh, it's
0: fascinating. So how did you come to have Amelia tested for being on the spectrum?
1: That happened a little bit later. So I think from around two there were a lot of behaviours that started kind of creeping in that were they seemed to signal a frustration. So it was they were pretty challenging um, tantrums, but not not your garden variety. I want that thing in the supermarket, and I can't have it. They were pretty sustained, very angry, um destructive meltdowns that you know could just happen on and off through an entire day, um couldn't really go anywhere with her. Um, and she became very anxious and, it seemed to be radically reducing her development. And so by the time she was about four, I was just thinking, I don't think that these behaviours are connected to her being a frustrated deaf person who's only recently been introduced to language. So we'd kind of given her enough time for that where I thought, maybe it's just that frustration. Let's like let it settle and see what happens. I don't want to keep pushing her in front of doctors every five seconds saying, what's wrong with her? But to me, seeing her among other deaf kids particularly showed me that there were differences in terms of how she, how connected and engaged she was. And so we were connected with a specialist, a paediatrician who specialises in kids who are deaf and autistic. So wow. it's an amazing combination. I don't know if there's anyone else. No, I around. was thinking that. Yeah. I wouldn't
0: have, when, yeah. I, uh, when I read the title of your book, I thought... That's a combination of challenges that I hadn't heard of before.
1: Yeah, that's right. And they're they weirdly, they're sort of interconnected in ways that make them quite difficult to uncouple. So but this paediatrician um, was the person to get to see and she was then the person that guided us through that. And, and very early on meeting Amelia, she was, it was very clear to her that deafness was over here in one corner and she was coping with that and dealing with it, but that some of these behaviours were more consistent with being on the spectrum and so so that's that's what kicked off that process.
0: I have heard of, of one of my best friends her child was diagnosed as being on the spectrum and it again there's another sense of loss for was for her then. Mm. How did it feel for you having Already gone through the diagnosis of deafness, yeah. and then hearing about the um, autism spectrum, and plus, in some ways, understanding the spectrum can be a lot harder than yeah, understanding deafness.
1: Completely. Um, weirdly, I did not have the same experience of grief, um, and I think partly it was because once once that first diagnosis had happened, I think it really changed who I was and how I viewed, not just Amelia, but just the world in general. So there is, maybe it's just my weird Protestant family that's always (laughs) waiting for for stuff to happen in a strange sort of creepily masochistic way. Like, of course that happened. No, of course that happened. But I think that um, because I was the one who was raising the alarm, so deafness came like a bolt out of the blue. Who was even looking for that? With autism, I could see things and they were worrying me. And, as you said, those behaviours, that the things that were making our life so kind of impossible and that were really kind of tearing us apart for a while. I just thought if we can get this diagnosis and it gives us help, then it's kind of it's like a it's like a freedom rather than a, some other kind of poison chalice, really. So it didn't connect to me as some other, bad thing. I certainly, certainly, it sat heavily, <laughs> but it wasn't as weighted as the deafness um, diagnosis was for me. And I'm, I'm kind of grateful for that. But I think, yeah, it certainly, put the deafness into perspective for me too, which was, as you say, even though it's a moving feast for us because there's been hearing aids worked for a while and now we're doing cochlear implants and none of that is a stable thing. She's in a school for deaf kids. She's fluent in sign language. Her speech is getting there. So I feel like that is kind of trucking. But with the autism, it was such a mass of stuff. How could we even begin to pick it apart and what would we look at first? And it's t- and so from four to now, four years of age to now, I feel like we've kind of, you know, it's like whack-a-mole. One thing would pop up and you'd have to deal with that OCG thing or that whatever that challenge was. But I think it just clicked so many things into place for me. So I just thought... Yeah, it confirmed what I believed, so I took some comfort from that. If that doesn't sound too strange <laughs> to no, say, Siobhan, yeah. Well, it gives you a path
0: forward, right? Exactly. If you had challenges, then you knew there were people that could try and help you. Yeah,
1: exactly. That's yeah. it.
0: I mentioned in earlier that uh, what I've noticed in parents who have children with special needs is a certain kind of fierceness. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, do you see that in yourself and also, why is that fierceness needed? <laughs> like, why do parents of children who have special yeah. needs, why do they have to fight for them?
1: Yeah, it's a really great question. I reckon in response to that question, I want to separate out something that you see you see referred to in the media as this kind of um, warrior mother type um, phenomenon where you might, as a mother, think that you have to find all of the answers. And maybe that means some some maybe controversial responses to autism or some views around, you know, anti-vaccination, all of that kind of stuff. And I don't mean to take my response there, but I wanted to say that fierceness should not be about thinking, you know, more than other professionals but understanding that what you know about is your child. So that fierceness is required. So in my experience... I feel like I'm a fierce person anyway, so that's <laughs> that like super handy. <laughs> coming to this. It's the red hair, you know, it's just a genetic thing. But um, the fierceness is required because if you don't advocate for your child, advocacy is very different from what I was talking about before. Um, nobody else is going to. So if I had not pushed to get in to see that paediatrician with the deafness autism specialisation, I don't know where we would be. We maybe would have arrived at the same point, but... Um, maybe it would have taken longer at a greater cost to our family. But I've often been the one blowing the whistle or raising red flags and I think that um, because when you're the closest person to that child and you just see that something is not right or if you see that there's a breakdown in communication somewhere, you can't just rely on other people to understand what your, your child's needs are. So for at school, it's great because they're experts in dealing with, with deafness and a lot of the teachers are deaf, so I don't have to worry at all. But other times where I've thought that it would be okay to take her to, say, a group activity and have been told that maybe it would be better if Amelia did not attend, and that stuff's pretty upsetting. No kidding. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> and so... Then you realise, what do you, what am I fighting for here? Am I fighting to place her with people who would see her as a burden to their activity? No. So you make it clear to those people that they suck and that you, don't want, <laughs> that, you, that you don't want, that they've missed an opportunity to meet a really amazing person. You could have taught them something about the world. And then the advocacy extends further to finding people who will embrace her and we have that in our life. So that fierceness can't ever really... Stop. You've just got to keep being sure that wherever your child is, whatever's happening, that they're being looked after because she, her capacity to advocate for herself, as fierce as she is. Not just because she's young, but she just doesn't have that ability. Um, so I feel like it's a life, a lifetime job. It's a very circuitous answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I quite, feel like I got. I'm quite happy. I, I feel think like you I got there. I definitely there, yeah. think you got there. It was a long journey, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No. Yeah. yeah. All
0: children need guidance and support yeah. and help as they learn and grow, which as you become a parent, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, child is going to be a whole lifetime experience yeah. of, of guiding like that. Special needs kids need more of this kind of support yeah. for different reasons. And I know that you do all of this for Amelia because you love her yes. and she's your daughter. Yeah, But I am curious, separate to that, what kind of toll has it taken on you personally? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's a good question. I I don't think anyone's asked me that um, <laughs> ever, ever. No, <laughs> so
0: maybe your GP might maybe have. I do, find yeah. GPs I, are actually.
1: You are so right about that. Um, <laughs> he always looks at me like very worried. Is everything okay? Um, look, I think that yeah, over time it does take a toll, and at different times a greater toll th- than others. So I certainly have found at times, you know, um, it's very tiring, super exhausting job. Parenting just is, but but, uh, I'm happy to say that the, the special needs experience is is a relentless and intense one and though Amelia grows every day and matures, she still is a very intense person to to live with and to parent. And so I cope with that in a bunch of ways. So I'm a sort of manic exerciser, Pilates and running, and I have to even though that doesn't sound relaxing, I have to keep <laughs> I, I have to find ways to keep my mental health on track so I mean it's really important and I think that I've grown a lot from the start so if you'd asked me that question five years ago you know maybe I would have said um you know it might have been a more negative answer that it had destroyed my spirit or something. (laughs) something like that but I mean the reality is I feel like I feel like actually I've it kind of breaks you down from the person you were in, but it rebuilds you into this new person who maybe is better equipped to deal with kind of anything. So, for instance, when I'm at work, my um my day job, it's like there may be stressful situations, but I'm, I don't ever sweat that stuff because I have this built-in perspective on other things. Or I see peers of familiars who have much greater needs than than she does it's a very sobering thing as well so um, but I do think um, yeah I don't know it's really hard it's a really hard question to answer actually but I think I feel like it's made me a better person on balance. Yeah, even if I, you know, I maybe I look about 70 years old when I'm actually <laughs> like, younger. I was just thinking how
0: young you look, <laughs> well, there you go.
1: I just was digging for a
0: compliment. That's it. Like, that's all. <laughs> well, there you have it. Um, Melinda, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us. Thank
1: you, Siobhan. That was lovely. Great questions.
0: <laughs> that's Melinda Hildebrandt. She's the author of Amelia and Me on Deafness, Autism and Parenting by the Seat of My Pants. We'll pop a link up to that book on our website. Just head